Welcome to the Dreamcast Podcast. My name is Daniel Bozinski, and my goal is to help you find purpose and become the greatest version of yourself. Every week, our promise is to deliver one-of-a-kind stories of individuals who are pioneering purpose in their life. These are people I personally would have loved to have as mentors and leaders in my life in the past, and now they're right here at our fingertips. The Dreamcast guests are willing to be authentic, genuine, and human about their struggles and success. To me, purpose is priceless. And if you're looking to make an investment into your life yourself, I believe you've come to the right place. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's get started. Today's guest is an entrepreneur and CEO of Panjo, an online marketplace and community for enthusiasts of unique and high quality items. From automotive to collectibles, Panjo has a marketplace for everything and has been venture-backed, raising over $6 million in two rounds from investors, including Spark Capital, The New York Times, Lair Ventures, Mesa Plus, BDMI Fund, and Marker Lab. Panjo is listed on Forbes' America's Most Promising Companies, and in 2016, sellers will complete $60 million in annual sales. It's been recognized by top press companies, including TechCrunch, Pando, PBS, Forbes, and many more. Formerly, our guest co-founded Foresight Solutions, a provider of SaaS applications that automated back office functions in college financial aid offices. It's used by hundreds of universities still, and the business won Brown University's annual business plan competition and was later acquired. Our guest also has a BA in economics from Brown University and is presented at many national conferences. He has served as a mentor in Brown University's entrepreneurship program and as a judge for Brown's annual business plan competition. He currently lives in Santa Monica, California and is here to inspire dreams. Chad Billmeyer, welcome to the Dreamcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, you live in one of my most favorite cities in the world. So I was really happy to see that and uh, I heard you enjoy it as well. Yes, uh, I have toured a lot of cities that that first company mentioned, Foresight, um, makes software for college financial aid offices. So I've been to a ton of college towns all over the country, and I am super happy living where I live. Well, great, man. Well, at the start of the show, I'd love for you just to, you know, share a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you're living, family, and uh, maybe a little of your backstory as well. Sure. So uh, as you hear, living in Santa Monica, California, so that's sort of on the beach as a called a suburb of Los Angeles. And uh, my husband and I have a seven year old who is in second grade. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, tell us you were living in other places before. Yeah, I grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, went to college in Rhode Island, was back in Philadelphia running my first company before moving out to California. Great, great. Well, tell me a little bit about your journey. Uh, you know, you started becoming interested in entrepreneurship. When did that happen? Yeah, I'd say probably one of the first memorable times that I was truly an entrepreneur was uh, somewhere around late middle school, early high school, when I was a summer caddy one summer. I was the youngest guy in the caddy shack, uh, which ultimately means you're the last person to go out. I couldn't carry two bags. I could only carry one bag. That impacts my daily earnings. Uh, I was so small. And uh, that inspired me to find something else to do the next summer. And uh, I had been doing this school program in middle school where I went down to a local TV station on Friday afternoons and shot these little news vignettes that would air during cartoons. And really? uh, I sort of begged and pleaded the TV station or pitched the TV station on hiring me full-time the next summer to sort of assist with video productions and help run things in the office. Uh, that seemed better to me than uh, than another sweltering summer of carrying golf bags. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how like no matter what, whether it's pain or gain, there's always this deep desire for more? <laughs> Uh, you know, I, hey, I might have might have loved the other thing. It's it's about discovering what you like and don't like. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So tell us a little bit about how uh, uh, Foresight Solutions came about. Yeah, so so Foresight was the first company I started. I started that uh, in my junior year of college, and the the kernel of that venture was that when my friends and I arrived at Brown University in 1997. Um, the, the college had a daily newspaper and uh, it was one of the first and earliest college dailies to have a website. Um, my 
my founding business partner, his job was to essentially go to sleep and then to wake up at 2 a.m. when the newspaper editors were all done putting the paper together to put the paper online with the antiquated system or antiquated time, you know, a one or two year old system in 1997 yep. um, to get the paper online. And so he and I, along with some others, worked on a project to make it easier for the editors to put the paper online themselves. That led to other departments around the university and other people hiring us to do various projects, which led to the financial aid office um, hiring us to develop something to help them run their federal work study program. This is the program where the Department of Education helps finance, in a way, uh, students throughout the country, throughout the nation. And it turns out it's, it's a bit of an iceberg there besides just the job that a student gets. There's a lot of paperwork involved that goes between the universities and the departments and the Department of Education. And so we built a piece of software to help colleges and universities manage that. And to this day now, uh, 15 years later, there are literally hundreds of schools, colleges still using that software. No big deal, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> You're in college building the systems for the colleges for real. Yes, true story. <laughs> that is hilarious, man. I mean, that's incredible. Most individuals are just going to college. I mean, that's that's some very technical things you already were doing during that time. Yeah, look, I was not the technical co-founder, right? So I had a buddy who was uh, Ray Pressman, who's now at Bloomberg, uh, doing amazing things there. Um, uh, yeah, it was a matter of right collecting. In, my role was sort of collecting the requirements for the department, understanding and envisioning what a solution might look like um, and and understanding how the needs of the university where we were were different and distinct from other institutions. So what, what interests me and in what you just said too is like most of entrepreneurship and leadership is, is listening and being a friend, right? So you were finding out, okay, what do you need and can we provide that solution? For sure. A, a favorite quote of mine that sort of comes from the solution selling methodology is diagnose before you prescribe. And I think it's really common for entrepreneurs, salespeople to sort of to product vomit, right? To jump right into the, the <laughs> details of all the benefits and features of whatever it is you're selling. And it takes a decent amount of discipline uh, to just be quiet and and ask a million questions. Another good quote around this sales topic is like, dare to be dumb. Um, there's sort of a, a chart where you see a sales a salesperson's performance over time, rise, 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 and then begin to fall. And what ends up happening is like that salesperson's heard the same issue so many times, they just, just jump right into the, the prescription instead of listening out and, and diagnosing first. That's so good, man. Well, what are some other things that you learned at your experience of uh, building that company? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like there, it was very much about- Because um, you were young, the, right? You were 20. Yeah. Uh, 21, I guess, when we started that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think, right, everything was new. Uh, how to lead people, how to hire, how to how to write code. Um, uh, it was interesting. It was, it was a time when, um, essentially, I graduated when the first dot-com bubble busted, and then 9-11 was shortly thereafter. Um, so it was sort of a bad time for the economy. It was a bad time for entrepreneurship. Um, uh college-based entrepreneurs were sort of heroes of the economy leading up to when I graduated. And then suddenly we were the people who were ruining the economy uh, <laughs> from at least like a press narrative perspective. Um, so it was an interesting time. Yeah, no, that's, that is interesting. And I, I, I can only imagine even the hurdles that you had to overcome by attending the school and being a student and <laughs> helping their financial aid office where all their money comes in, right? Yeah, and I, I look say kudos to um, Brown. It it, uh, it continues to evolve as it should, its entrepreneurship program. At the time, I was able to do an independent study that allowed me to reduce my overall like academic course load and essentially treat this venture as at least a course for some credit in one semester. Um, and that was super helpful. And again, like kudos to the university for having the insight, the foresight to uh, to allow students to do things like that and sort of set set their course. Come on, man. That's like super to me. That's really inspirational. And again, kudos to the university because that's so in, that's so ingenuitive. That's so that 
they were really thinking there and I love that they were being human, right? Like, okay, yeah. this guy uh, is putting in work, <laughs> give him credit. Yeah. Like that's, it's very much in the spirit of that, of that institution where there is no core curriculum, uh, within your major, you have a classes you have to take, but outside that, like the world is your oyster. And, um, Right. And this is a perfect example of why a person like me, like ends up at a place like that, uh, sort of, yeah. uh, I want to take advantage is not the right term, right. To, to leverage this, this great opportunity. Um, it's interesting. I, when I talk to college or, or entrepreneurs who are currently in college, um, they sort of view themselves as being, uh, you know, busy and have a lot of work. And I can't emphasize enough when I speak to them, like you have no idea how much free time you have, <laughs> you have no idea, like, how many things are taking away? You have like a house overhead, a dining hall that can feed you. Like it doesn't get easier than this. Like, totally. Yes. Yes. You don't have experience. And yes, it like might be um, uh, interesting or intriguing to like go join a, a big company to learn there before you start something. But I, I would sort of argue it, it is never easier to start something than when you're in college, when some of these elements are taken care of in your life. And and you can have this freedom to, to pursue a venture absent whatever experience you are lacking. So that's so that really resonates with me, Chad, because, uh, you know, I'm 26 right now, turning 27 here pretty soon. I'm, I'm really young. I got two baby girls, me and my wife, uh, just having fun raising them 22 months and seven months old. And, uh, you know, it's it's I started in college my junior year. And I honestly feel like it took me five years just to truly grasp the language, the values the objective, the outcome that I want to produce in my businesses, in my life. And, and, and interestingly enough, yes, it was very difficult. But like you said, um, looking back retrospectively, I mean, trying to start it right now, if I was in a career, my gosh, would that be 10 times harder? Exactly. Yeah. I have good news for you. Uh, it gets easier after your, your girls are five. <laughs> First five years, those are tough. Yeah, we are. I, I was thinking about it yesterday. I'm like, I wonder how many diapers we change a week. But to be honest with you, my wife kills it. She changes them just about <laughs> most of them. But well, no, I, I'm really glad we got to chat a little bit about that with the university. And that brings me a lot of hope that universities are uh, really taking the extra initiative there, too. Tell me this. What, who are some mentors that you've had speak into your life that have helped you, you know, shape and form that uh, mentality and level of success that you're walking in right now? Yes, I think of uh, this one professor at, at Brown, uh, Barrett Hazeltine. Uh, he uh, historically taught a couple of courses. Um, they're very much like B school courses. You're reading Harvard Business School cases and and doing these case studies on, on businesses. And the important thing that sort of he instills in students is the sort of you can do it, right? I think. Um, it's not uncommon for an entrepreneur to, to pitch their idea and be enthusiastic about it and to get feedback from mentors, peers, whatever, that, where, that are punching holes in the idea. Yep. And that's sort of the natural place for, and ultimately everybody does that with the intent to be helpful. They're like, have you thought of this? Have you seen this? I don't think that can work, right? And I think one thing that maybe sets entrepreneurs apart is you look past that, you're like, of course none of this, like, right? The, <laughs> the, the, the odds are, are really low of, of success, but like you, you can just see through all that and you, right. you pass right through that. So, so this thing he instills in students is uh, uh, you can do it, right? You're like, everything is so positive. Right. Um, so that's something from him. Uh, post, post-graduation, um, I shared some office space uh, and got some support from this uh, amazing guy, Chris McConnell in the Philadelphia area. Um, he actually had a venture that, for lack of a better description, like made washing machines for things that had to be super, super clean, like silicon wafers. Um, <laughs> that was his really fascinating business in itself, this industrial machining venture. Yep. Um, and um, watching him uh, lead people, uh, work through business development, I, I think a thing I took away from him is this um, sort of mentality that the onus of everything is on him or everything was his fault. He, he took this approach, which I, I continue to kind of carry through, which is like, okay, in the, for the people around me who I'm working with, whatever, if something is not going right, ine inevitably it is my fault as, mm -hmm. the, as the leader of the organization. And so what can I do to remove that barrier or get you the support you need or get you the education or help or whatever? Like uh, if something is not going right, it's my fault. Uh, I'm not phrasing it as, as best I could, but um, it's, it's an interesting like 
approach. <laughs> um, yeah, and then thinking one one mentor leader, uh, this woman Tage Haynes at Nelmet, um, who was really the first boss I had because. I didn't look for a job coming out of college. I was my own boss. Um, and so after that company was acquired uh, and I reported this woman, T.A. Chains at, at Nelnet, um, she had this wonderful, wonderful approach as a people leader of saying like, my job is to, you know, make you as successful as possible. And this it follows kind of the same, it's my fault mentality or approach. Um, and so when I, when I bring that approach to the people I lead today, um, it's, yeah, what can I do to you know, give you the support you need and get barriers out of your way? Yeah, I like, you know, one of the things that I'm picking up as you're, as you're saying this is like, you know, you didn't mention people that you read in a book. You didn't mention, <laughs> like you, re- you mentioned people that you experienced in real life. And it sounds like their actions were disruptive to the current model of, traditional leadership. Now I'm not saying traditional leadership is negative. I'm just saying maybe what most of us most of us have experienced. Like selfless leadership. That's what you're talking about. And and stewardship. Like, hey, I can only control myself and my outcome. And man, I love that. That is super powerful. Yeah, I think we use the term mentor. I think separately, you know, is a question like, hey, what books are you like authors? And there I think of you know, Jim Collins and Good to Great and Built to Last, or uh, Patrick Lencioni has an amazing series of sort of business fables uh, with titles like um, Five Temptations of a CEO or Death by Meeting. Those are those are great books, <laughs> and I, you know, as soon as I finish one of those, I'm I'm jazzed up to like implement things I, you know, I was just reading about and throwing around the terminology I just picked up. But uh, yeah, think of like those aren't mentors to me. Those are maybe inspiring or engaging authors. Um, yeah, Michael Lewis, right, in his series, uh, just read Flash Boys about high-frequency trading. Uh, so I enjoy all that stuff as well. <laughs> yeah, those are like those e-mentors are, are definitely it, – it's cool how the people that have influenced you greatest are those closest to you. But then your mentors can be people that you have direct or indirect correlation with, right? Agreed. Totally cool. So tell me this. How did you transition from the writing of the code and financial you know, aid office to enthusiast market industry? Yeah. So, um, all right. So I was running this company for about five years. And uh, again, to say hundreds of colleges still use that software to manage work study or in scholarship uh, applications and things. Um, that business was acquired by Nelnet. Some listeners may know that brand Nelnet. Others may not. Um uh, Nelnet services to this day a lot of student loans in the United States, um, wow. which is how folks might might know that company. Uh, they're a, they're sort of a diversified education holding company. They're like a Berkshire Hathaway of education. Okay. Um, uh, so they have a bunch of brands that folks might know them through. Uh, I was last there in their Peterson's division, which is education planning and financing. So Peterson's.com is a site where you can like research colleges and grad schools and scholarships uh, and. I was living in Santa Monica, one of your favorite places, and uh, <laughs> Peterson's was based in Princeton, New Jersey. So I was chalking up like north of 100,000 miles a year going back and forth wow. coast to coast and uh, and then adopted our, our son. And uh, that travel was just not going to fly with a, a growing family. Uh, so it was time to transition out of, of Peterson's. And... I, I left that organization, and one of the very first things I did was incorporate uh, a shell, if you will, so incorporate a company for whatever I was going to do. I hadn't really decided what I was going to do. So Panjo's parent company is the generically named Interactive Innovation Group, Inc. Right? So I just <laughs> incorporated a thing that could be anything <laughs> um, and, and spent a couple weeks researching um, various ideas I had, and, and this one kept popping to the top of the pile. I was one of the first people I knew with a hybrid car in 2001. So, like, nobody was driving a Toyota Prius at the time. Uh, there was only the Toyota Prius and the, and the Honda Insight. And I had done a couple modifications on my Insight, and I was in some auto forums learning how to get more gas mileage out of this hybrid car. And um, that exposed me to the friction and fragmentation that exists in this, like, world of enthusiast peer-to-peer commerce of experts selling and buying from experts. Um, And and so it was then, like, at this point that I left Nelnet that I I returned to that and, and sort of saw an opportunity to start a venture that centered around that. It's so cool how like I love that you just you just went for it. Like you went back to that principle that your 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 teacher told you. You can do it. Like just create a company even if you don't know why and just 
go for it. <laughs> yeah, like I don't know how to search for a job. I don't know how to get hired. I don't know how to make a company, right? <laughs> I think, yeah, if I knew how to find a job, maybe I'd do that. Totally. So cool. Well, I, you know, really quick too, interestingly enough, I have uh, a Prius, just so you know. And uh, I am a freak about hybrid cars. I had the 2006 Prius, um, and then it started. That was the one that uh, many individuals had passed away in, and so it started actually accelerating on me uh, on the freeway. So I had to get rid of that Prius, and I bought another Prius. But I, I'm totally with you on the hybrid cars, man. Yeah, or, or like, no, I just uh, modified my 2010 Prius this weekend, where like the Bluetooth was not connecting anymore. The technology was really outdated for my. Uh, iPhone 7, so I put in uh, Apple CarPlay in my car this weekend, doing a, a mod true to my, Come my on. world of enthusiasts. Yeah. So cool. We have a few t- things in common. Priuses, Santa Monica. <laughs> Let's see what else. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure, too, like you, you must have experienced a, a bunch of difficulties um, starting up Panjo. I mean, this is such a new concept, too, like because you're talking about real niche enthusiast markets, experts. So what what are some of the things you've learned and some of the difficulties? Um, yeah, so so Panjo is a marketplace business. Marketplaces are sort of hot right now. It's it's uh, coming up on the end of 2016 here. And uh, we recorded this and. Um, uh, Uber and Airbnb, you know, among others, have demonstrated that this marketplaces can grow to be like really valuable businesses. So the thing about marketplaces is that they sort of defy the laws of business gravity, right? If you think to like a, Mar- a Microsoft or a Google, they're these super giant entities, and the bigger they get, where they sort of get weak, weaker, right? And you can attack them at their Achilles heels, and um, they become harder to, to just sort of manage and, and keep organized. But if you think about eBay, eBay celebrated their 21st birthday this year. Wow. And man, as the thing grows bigger, right, it just grows stronger. And you get this, this network effects, right? So network effects. Uh, if two people have telephones, that's not so well. Two people have more, a telephone that's more valuable than one person. If hundreds of people have telephones, like that's a network effect. The whole network is now even way more valuable by way of the fact that lots of people are in it. Right. So that's a quality of marketplaces, the network effect. As it grows bigger, it grows stronger. Um, of course, the tricky part is getting that thing off the ground in the first place. And right. that's been the biggest challenge, growing supply and demand um, in equilibrium. If you're just selling widgets, you, you make the widget, you market the widget, and all business is hard, that's hard. But in the a case of a marketplace, you have to sort of simultaneously grow supply and demand, and that's sort of been the hard part. Yeah, no, I can only imagine. And I like what you're saying too, though. The, 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 the larger it grows, the stronger it is because you then start to build a community. You start to build raving fans. You start to build individuals that are telling other people about it, and they're signing them up. It's very, very. I can, I can only imagine the uh, the multiplication factor at certain aspects of it. Yes, as uh, as more shoppers are shopping there, more sellers want to sell there. As more sellers are selling there, there's more for the shoppers to find, and, and these right there's this accretive value that's that's unfolding as the thing gets bigger and stronger. Totally. So tell us a little bit too, what are some of the items typically sold and bought on the platform? So anybody listening right now can go to Panjo.com and create a marketplace for a community they belong to. Um, our, at this nanosecond, some of our top community marketplaces are in categories like BMW enthusiasts. So there's everything from a BMW car to a steering wheel to a spoiler to wheels. So like mod parts and accessories and modifications. Um, through to we have a, a strong like belly dancing enthusiast community where it's mostly women who are into belly dancing sell like dresses and accessories and things to one another. Um, on the quirkier end of things, there is a carnivorous plant enthusiast marketplace for <laughs> for gardeners who that are that are really into carnivorous plants and and uh, you know breeding them and selling those to one another. So there's it runs the gamut. So cool. Tell me tell me this. What's one of the most interesting like out there one that you were like wow i didn't know that existed well it's like yeah we keep a file at panjo called that's a thing um when we discover <laughs> that something is a new thing so certainly the carnivorous plants one is up there but i just gave that one away so how, um another one leaving to mind is flashlights um there are flashlight enthusiasts and also light bars so flashlights like that community is concerned about um the battery life, the, uh, the brightness, the color temperature, exactly all these things. Um, and that may be everything from like 
outdoorsmen, the emergency responders, which brings in this other community, these light bar enthusiasts, um, right? So if you, you look around at the number of like construction vehicles, emergency vehicles, you know, whatever, just a, a cafeteria vehicle, a school or something that have all these sort of flashing lights and lights on top and lights on the tail and head of the car. Uh, so we have a whole community of, of all those sort of lights and sirens and things. Like Panjo makes so much sense because people are like, we're innately passionate about the things we give our time to our money to like if you're a hunter you could be super passionate just about you know a specific gun and mods for that gun and bullets for that gun and create uh <laughs> create a group on panjo it sounds like and really get people to rally around it yeah for sure um guns are tricky because of state laws and things there's, there's no there aren't guns but there are like hunting supplies uh, uh knives and fire starters and all kinds of things um, on Panjo, as you said, like anybody who's listening who's into model railroads, Disney pins, cosplay, motorcycles, goes on and on. right? Yep, motorcycles. Go to Panjo, start a community marketplace. <laughs> so, what would you say too? I mean, I, I feel like I can see it right now, but what are some of the more differentiated factors of Panjo from, say, Craigslist, eBay, um, those types of marketplaces? Yeah, super fantastic question. Um, all right, so let's talk about Craigslist first. Um, and actually, it, when we talk about Craigslist, it, I should include some more contemporary companies like OfferUp and LetGo. Um, so Craigslist is classifieds, right? And classifieds are ads. So you are posting an ad saying, announcing to the world that you are selling something. Right. And if you think about how Craigslist is organized, it's largely organized into geographies, right? You go into the Los Angeles Craigslist and you tend to do a transaction where you go, like you do that in person. You pay one another in person. You go pick it up in person. There's not a lot of shipping going on. Nope. So, so these are some, so, so those are some examples of differences. Uh, it's classified as opposed to a marketplace, meaning it's not transactional. You know, payments done in person at Craigslist as opposed to the average pantry and buyer and seller live 1,500 miles apart. Um, and, and, and the organization of that site's around geography. So that's kind of some differences between, and the same could be said for, uh, for OfferUp and LetGo, which are sort of mobile apps centered around the classified space. The stuff is commodities, like you know what a used crib is maybe worth to you. And, and you can see, you just, you don't need a description of it. You can see in a picture, like that is a crib. Right. right. Whereas you got a panjo and you're looking at a picture of something, you know, what is that? Oh, it's like it's it's such and such a differentiator, you know, <laughs> uh, an alternator or whatever. Right? And you need a description of exactly what kind it is. And, um, and there's some subject matter expertise involved. So that's that's the difference between panjo and Craigslist or offer up or let go classified sites um, with respect to eBay. Eighty percent of what's sold at eBay now is new. So if you if your view of eBay is like eBay of 20 years ago, like that's not really the eBay of today. Um, it's clearly still 20% of their gross merchandise volume is a big number. But um, as far as like who they're catering to today, it's power sellers. It's folks running eBay arbitrage businesses with warehouses of stuff, you know, and they're they're operating against price inefficiencies. Um, I didn't know and that. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're a, a um, BMW enthusiast or a camping or hunting enthusiast, uh, and you know exactly what you want. Okay, like you can go there and search. And PS, you know, eighty percent of it's new, um, or at least of the GMV of the sales are new. But when it comes to kind of the way that enthusiasts like shop and discover and get inspired uh, or look or hunt for deals, um, eBay doesn't really lend itself to that kind of of uh, modality of shopping, that, that form of shopping. Um, and so that's where, where there's a place for Panjo in this world, where there's kind of a gap in the market where a marketplace organized around communities, um, you know, could, can exist uh, because of this way that, that enthusiast buyers and sellers buy and sell. It's so like, that's such a good description, Chad. Like, I'm not just saying that it's because it, <laughs> that's right on first. I didn't even know that about eBay, um, but they all have like, you know, if I'm using eBay for me right now, the interesting thing is, is I'm trying to sell something used and that's probably why it takes so long for it to sell. Craigslist is such a hard thing to do because I don't want to, you know, we're in this time now where we're busy, busy. I don't want to have to like text this person and then have them come over to my house or go and meet them. And then same with Amazon, you know, all their return policy. I don't want to have to deal with all like the different function of that. But I, I totally can see like if someone's into leather, like they could be a part of this community and it's all created goods. It's all customized, super detailed. I mean, 
I, I, I cannot wait to do a little bit more deep research on some of my little hobbies and <laughs> passions on Panjo because the value for it is incredible. So glad you created that community, man. We hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me this. Are you surprised um, looking at your life right now? Are you surprised at where you're at? I, um, man, that's a tough question to answer. I guess I'm like, I operate a lot in the present. Well, I think about, right, I, for Panjo, I envision things about our product roadmap or we see there, our lighthouse, like what we are all <laughs> rowing toward. Yep. Um, as far as like my life in itself, I don't know that I ever thought very much about what my life would be like at this age. Um, so my surprise, like, I guess if I'm, uh, I'm happy. And so I think that's important. Right? I'm, I'm happy with my work. I, I can't wait to come in in the morning and I can't wait to go home at night to be with my second grader. So um, it's less about surprise and I think more about happiness. So good. Yeah. And what are some like key moments or defining moments? I always say that we all have these these defining destiny moments in our life, right? Where, you know, if we were to look back 10 years, we point to four moments. What are some of those moments that really like shifted you and defined who you are today? Yeah, I think some of these have somewhat come up already. Um, so I mentioned that uh, going way, way back, right? I, I pitched to this local TV station that um, they could use my help in the summer and they, they did that. Um, and so for a while I was sort of pat on this, television career career path um and one of the last things i did as a summer internship was a, a internship at dateline nbc uh summer of my sophomore year at that time dateline was on some crazy number of, i don't know five nights a week or something i think it's on maybe one night a week now and um that i think internships are super important that internship turned me off to tv i have nothing bad to say about nbc or dateline or anything it was just when i really was in that world um looking at it from like, is this what I want to do from a career perspective? The answer was ultimately no by the end of that summer. And uh, so that was kind of a defining internship and a defining summer. Um, certainly the Nelnet transaction, when Nelnet bought my first company, Foresight Solutions, that was defining um, to go from a, whatever, a few person startup to a multi-thousand person publicly traded company um, and to learn about uh, bureaucracy in an organization and <laughs> internal communications and people leadership and things that I was just completely not exposed to prior. Um, that was uh, certainly a pivotal a time. Um, I, I mentioned this earlier, you know, traveling 100,000 miles a year coast to coast um, was uh, was taxing. Uh, this was also like post 9-11, so traveling was no joy. Pre-TSA pre, pre, -TSA, pre. <laughs> um, traveling was really no joy. And uh, yeah, thinking about, you know, again, be, being happy and like what, what I wanted out of life and that kind of that degree of travel was, was not it. Yeah, I love one of the things that stands out most to me is when you talked about getting the internship. I remember my brother-in-law helped me get an internship with the largest accounting firm in Michigan. And I remember talking to him and saying, you know what, I just don't feel I don't feel like this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And uh, it's not that I wasn't pursuing the right thing or that it was wrong. It's just it wasn't right for me. And I remember he said something to me. He said, Daniel, there's two things that are going to happen. You're either going to know that this is what you love and you're going to do for the rest of your life, or it's going to be a defining moment that you know that it's something you cannot commit your life to. And I remember doing the internship, and I loved the people. I loved the experience. Uh, I truly soaked up every moment in learning uh, learning opportunity. Uh, but I remember after, I <laughs> shortly after was like, yeah, I, I'm shifting gears. I was you know, just about to graduate <laughs> with my accounting degree, and I'm like, I do not want to do accounting, but I'm going to go for it. I'm going to create a business, and we're going to run with it. And so I love that you said the same thing. It's kind of like it's this discovery balance of like, what am I going to do with my life? And I would like to say if you know someone's tuning in right now i don't think that this has to be a college moment i think that there's defining moments every time in our life and every year of our life there's many moments where we just make internal decisions about our future and so no i'm so glad you shared that yeah i was gonna say i think we all right try because the, those internships are so important in my life you know we try to have about two interns at panjo at any time at minimum and uh yeah they're any, they might be in college or, or they're folks post-college and um, right, ideally, we're exposing those individuals to the the roles and functions of 
various responsibilities around Panjo. Um, how how can you know if you want to career path into product management if there's no way to be a product manager in high school or college or anything? You need to be inside an organization to see what that job function is all about. Totally. Well said. I think that's right on point. I uh, I remember going and shadowing my sister-in-law, and uh, she's uh, basically working in the ER. And I found out very quickly I did not want to be in the ER. <laughs> so sometimes you have to go experience it, right? Exactly. So let's do a little personal shift. I, I would love to hear kind of like what your daily routine looks like and uh, tell us what that looks like. Oh man, it's, it's probably really common to any working parent out there. So, uh, you know, seven to eight is getting my second grader ready for school, packing lunch, getting them out the door on the school. Uh, I am super lucky where I can walk to work. So it's about a 30 minute, uh, mile and a half walk. I try, I, I used to listen to podcasts and things great like this one. Uh, I, I then just try to walk in silence and allow my mind to wander. <laughs> so I get that walk in the morning and then, uh, I have to be super efficient about my day. I just don't have much gas left in the tank after I then get walk home, do the whole bedtime routine, uh, and I, I pretty much crash. So what I don't get done, like what I have to get done, has to get done during the work day, and I have to be really efficient about it. Um, so that's kind of the <laughs> that's the I guess abridged daily routine. <laughs> it's so funny. I feel the same way. Like I feel like. I feel like it is, you know, you get up, I, sometimes I get to leave in the morning and not have to get up with the kids and do all that right now, even just the process of getting them up and having them eat breakfast. And, but, but it's like, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm just like so drained, but you know, you got to show up still and perform and make, you know, goofy faces and have fun. And <laughs> it, yeah. I, I, right. I think, uh, I'm not very romantic about being a parent. It's great. I think I think it's super hard. It's super hard to be a work. It's super hard to be a working parent, right? Kudos right. to all the working parents listening. And uh, right, as much as I uh, had grandiose visions of playing Legos and building Legos, my seven-year-old is a terrible Lego playmate. He's very selfish, <laughs> and, and he destroys the things I make. And um, and I'm just like super tired at the end of the day. Right. Uh, it's it's exhausting. Um, I do try to keep the weekends, you know, for for him um, and reduce any work that's happening on the weekend. Uh, but that's kind of how my my day shakes out. I think um, what was I going to say? Oh, that uh, on this walk, like I tend to pass some of the same people who clearly have whatever, a similar morning routine and pattern. Or, and uh, it's very Groundhog Day like. Um, and that, that would be somewhat depressing if not for the fact that every day at Panjo is so different, right? The, uh, in a tech startup, the range of challenges and opportunities and like problems you're solving yep. and things you weren't expecting that pop up, uh, do range like just vary so much from day to day that that makes it so enjoyable to, to be here every day. Yeah. I like it. I love that. I think it's so true. There's not a sim. There's not a similar day of activities, right? You're always overcoming new objections and, and questions, and I love that. It's like my favorite. Well, yeah. So I'm gonna. I had this conversation with a dentist friend of mine, right? So he had, you know, whatever this eight more years of, of schooling than I did to, to be a dentist, and now so similar ages, and at this point where his day is kind of the same every day. It's right. Uh, right. There's only yes, it's like interesting when a new whatever teeth or mouth challenge comes into the office. But it's more or less kind of routine and cavities, um, molars, and dentures, <laughs> right? Uh, in a way that mine is not, and in a way that I can appreciate the the variety that occurs in my day, and the opportunity, and the people I encounter, and everything. Um, yeah, it's just it's different. <laughs> so, so I I'm kind of intrigued in one thing too, Chad. So you you've raised six million dollars in two different sessions per se, and uh, that's just amazing. I, I think that when if I was tuning in and even just listening to you, I always say that the Dreamcast is my favorite personal development tool for myself. Like, I, I want to know, like, first, how did you do that? And um, just tell us a little bit of that story because that's just incredible. Sure. So uh, thank you for saying that. Like, raising financing is is an accomplishment and not an accomplishment, right? Like, all, right. all you've done is capitalize your business so you can go do the things you set out to do. Um, I think... When I encounter entrepreneurs, right, who are sort of have never been involved with uh, venture capital or, or venture-backed investments, um, there are dollar signs in their eyes, right? And um, I think it's important to, to note a couple things about venture capital. So 
it, it is a type of financing for a venture that has, um, you know, tremendous, tremendous risk and tremendous outcome opportunity. Right. Um, Panjo has the potential to be a multi-billion dollar business. And right. So for someone who's listening, who, uh, is running a bake shop or something, uh, and, and it's like, man, it'd be great to have $6 million, right? Like that's not the kind of thing a, a venture capitalist invests in like circumstances. Um, right. And so, right. So it's, it's really about aligning the right kind of financing with the right kind of venture, uh, as to like how we raise that money. Um, I think there is a certain uh, kabuki dance to to venture financing that I wouldn't have known without the help of an accelerator we went through um, called Mucker Capital, which is in Los Angeles. And um, so at Mucker, uh, which is sort of a co oh, an accelerator, an incubator, you know, sitting side by side with other one, two, three person companies, and we're all kind of going through the pieces together. And, and these are all these are all sort of pre venture back companies. They're, seed stage companies that are on a path to venture financing because they all have sort of billion dollar potential, multi-billion dollar potential. Yep. And um, the thing about it is uh, whether there's a certain way into a venture firm, there's a certain way to prepare your materials, uh, to tell your story, to talk about the potential, to understand the market, to prove things like product market fit and um, economics around growth, uh, so yeah, that that's probably its own podcast series in and of itself. I'm happy, I'm happy to answer something more specifically, but um, uh, I, I guess like the more kind of macro takeaway is venture capital is is for a very specific type of type of business. Right. Well, and you know, I I really don't say that lightly. I'm glad that you actually understand and appreciate. It. Like I like I celebrate you, man. Like I, I like <laughs> I praise you in the sense that like. I think that a lot of times people are like, oh yeah, you want to raise money for venture capital? Oh, that's easy. And there are people that have never raised money. And I run two nonprofits and it's like, listen, I don't care if it's for a nonprofit or a for-profit, like getting people to give millions of dollars, that's like the real deal. And it's not easy. And so, I mean, it's, it's yeah, I think that maybe we'll revisit that sometime and do a little serious on something like that because that's that's a story in and of itself, right? Yeah, there, there's... Um First Round Capital, who is not a Panjo investor, um, but a, a great VC firm, has a really nice blog post that actually speaks to a called like a VC raising process or strategy. Uh, process is kind of a better way to put it, right? I, I actually, it's not uncommon for me to come across an entrepreneur who really has a, a venture backable business, but doesn't put much in the way of process to their financing plan they're just sort of scattered about it and they're taking meetings and taking inbound stuff and doing outbound stuff and i, I think it is kind of important to to put a process to it in the same way that a sales process is important to any venture um uh and working a prospect through through a process through a workflow uh, the same is true of raising venture capital money like it's not just showing up and pitching and taking meetings like there's a way to sort of keep it controlled and structure it and not so much increase your chances of success but rather go about a way that you can succeed or fail more quickly than having what i see happen commonly which is this like ongoing dragged out destined for failure financing approach yeah i definitely see what you're saying i think that there is this um this structure business system like creating a business plan it's like creating a business plan for venture capitalists, correct? To show the value of what you're building. Yeah, for sure. And I, uh, man, going back to my first company, like we had a, I don't know what that was, a 30 page business plan, a private placement memorandum. And that's kind of, it's also about being in tune with what what the contemporary needs are of, a, of an investor, of an angel investor or an institutional investor. Is it just uh, a deck of presenta presentation materials, a few slides? Um, uh, a, I think a more informed, sophisticated investor would not so much ask for projections, right? Any projections that you put down are about as worthless or about as valuable as the whatever penny piece of paper they're on. Um, so it's really about like, do you truly understand the market? Do you truly understand like what your next steps are? Do you truly have a grand vision and, and like at least a current path to get there? But also venture investing is very much about the team. Like, is this a team that can 
bail fast and succeed faster. Right. Right. I love that, man. These little notes that you're giving right now, though, truly, <laughs> they truly speak to me. They really do. Well, hey, I want to ask you a few other questions before we end the show, too. So tell me, what is like a personal lesson that you took the longest to learn? Um, man, I think uh, staying lean. So as a, as a tech startup, I'm, I'm leaning here on Eric Rice's uh, lean methodology. This is a methodology of build measure, learn, and, and iterate, and then you move on from there. Um, I did this multiple times. We still make this mistake at Panjo, and it takes a lot of discipline to break out of this habit, and I see this happen with a lot of uh, startups or first-time entrepreneurs, where there's this mentality of, um, okay, I have a vision. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna make uh, we're gonna make a piece of software to, that does X, Y, and Z. And, and the team sets about building sort of the end vision instead of building the leanest kernel of that grand vision first and getting that like t that that very initial like if we strip this all the way down to the most like basic elements what does it mean to do like do you have to be able to share this thing on facebook no like we can cut that right and so instead of Right. I see all the time like a team heads down pre-launch, just building, 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 investing, investing, investing. And P.S. like I've done this more than once at Panjo. Right. We had to do this multiple times to learn this lesson, to not do this. That instead, when we finally like got better about product development, um, it, it was it just took a tremendous amount of discipline to say, you know what, instead of actually like, shipping that feature, let's put a button there that would be the first step into the feature and see how many people click on it. Let's not build the feature. Let's just see if people like click on the button that would lead to the feature. Right? Wow. That's, that's lean V1. And hey, if nobody clicks on it, then we saved ourselves from building that thing. Uh, and the same is true of, of just a product overall. We moved, like iterated the business model a little bit and stripped down what did, what did you have to do at Panjo at, at the most basic element? As a seller, you just had to be able to create a listing. As a buyer, you have to be able to purchase the listing. And that's that's like the kernel of Panjo. Do you have to be able to print a shipping label? No. Do you have to be able to share the listing socially? No. Like these are all all things that you know are ultimately not superfluous. They, they matter in terms of it being a better product or more enjoyable or, or spreading more virally or all this kind of thing. When you when you distill Panjo, a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace, down to that kernel, that's our kernel. And I think it's super important for any entrepreneur business or or pre pre-launch pre-product business to. to have the discipline to build that basic kernel, measure around that, learn from that, and then iterate out from there so you don't set off on this massively wrong course. That is so good, man. I, honestly, like it's so incredible to think about because you can build this great big vision, but like what you said, you got to sometimes just stop and say, do people even want this, <laughs> right? Like even that is small, but then going down to the nitty-gritty of – you know, it's like the crawl, walk, run phase, right? It's like, what is the bare minimum of what this this marketplace could do for people? I love that. That speaks so many things to me. Well, yeah, like a prelude step to that is can you sell it before you build it? So it's not uncommon to see a team raise a little friends and family money and they're building and building and building and they don't have any sales. Um, can you get sales first and then build for people who either gave you letters of intent or down payments or something and that that was an approach we took with my first company foresight where uh colleges were coming to us asking for other applications beyond the first one we had built and um thankfully you know we had demonstrated we could ship product and institutions were willing to do just that sign letters of intent or or give us like advance payments for something we promised to ship a number of months from now um and that, that's how you know you have a customer and you have customers at the end of the day. That's super cool. Again, that just like I had to write, take a little notes, like get sales first, then build it. Like if you could do that, then you'd know you have something good, right? <laughs> yeah, this, this, there's a great, um, this company, it, it ultimately failed and there's there's sort of replaced this company. There's this company, Pop-Up Pantry, and um, they, you can stand up with a vision for what your company will be on something like Shopify and get sales before your thing exists, and you can go back to those people and refund, oh, I'm sorry, we're not available in your geography yet, or I've added you to the waiting list that just you know refunded you, or right? There's there's ways to very, very inexpensively stand up the the most basic MVP or like just marketing pages for what you're going to be, see if you can get people there, see if you can get them to plop down on their credit card and refund them. Um, 
obviously you don't want to steal people's money, uh, but if that's that's great, that's great demonstration of demand and market demand and product market fit. You're blowing my mind, bro. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like loving every single thing you say for real. Thanks for adding that little <laughs> note because, I mean, this is just it's right on. I think that you are hitting some things that. Again, the Dreamcast podcast is all about helping individuals find their purpose, make their dream a reality, and and becoming the greatest version of themselves. And I think that when it comes to making your dream a reality, these are the things that can save you so much time and money. I mean, those last four yes. things you said were like, those are major things. <laughs> those are book titles, right? <laughs> I, I wish, and look, I wish I could give myself this advice six years ago. I saved myself hundreds of millions of dollars of waste or mistakes or whatever at Pancho. Um, you know, thankfully we're a team that has demonstrated we can overcome these, these mistakes. Uh, but yeah, this is advice I should have given myself six years ago. It's so good. Well, it's funny cause the end of show, I have a question for you. And so maybe it's more on a personal level, maybe it's more on a company level. Um, but if you could go back and talk with your 20 something self, what advice would you tell yourself? Yes. Yeah, so, so obviously just rattled through a bunch of, a bunch of business business advice that I would have given myself. I think on the personal note, um, eat less sugar. <laughs> I really appreciate, like as I'm marching toward my 40s, I appreciate the value of, of good health and embodying good condition, and I, I am, but uh, there's this fantastic documentary, Fed Up, um, which uh, really schooled me about <laughs> sugar in, in a diet and the consequences of sugar in a diet, and uh, right, and men, uh, be it personal happiness, work ha happiness, you're given one body, so you got to take care of it. It's good. Um, so, so stay healthy. Yeah, eat less sugar. Eat less sugar. <laughs> see, 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 see fed up. <laughs> I just looked it up. I'm going to watch it later. It's a good, good flick. Yeah, go ahead. You were going to say some of the business advice as well? I think back to like, I don't know, some, some early inspiration as a kid or, or influence as a kid. I think of, I spent a lot of time playing with Legos, and, and my son does now, and I sort of encourage it. Um, I think the thing that you sort of get out of that is seeing something from nothing. So there's just this disparate pile of pieces on the floor and you see that pile and you envision a hospital, a police station, a car, a right? And so that's a lot of what I think entrepreneurship and certainly business development is about, like seeing the path from, well, here's what we do and here's what you do and here's a way that like we can help one another or, or I can lift your business or you can lift mine. Or, so this this ability to, to take disparate um, paths or missions or products and see that the way, the way they can support one another, or, you know, a rising tide raising all boats, um, like where do those opportunities exist? I love it. See something from nothing. I love it so much. Well, yeah. Chad, thank get, you again. Get your kids I, to play with Legos. <laughs> yes. And hey, guess what? Just so you know, I you know had thousands of Legos growing up, like little pieces, and I saved them all, actually. <laughs> and I cannot wait for my kids to actually do that. So it's funny you brought that yeah. up as well. To, to not choke on them, right? You, you're almost there. <laughs> you're almost there, right? Well, thanks so much, Chad, for taking time. I really appreciate you being on the Dreamcast. Really pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. You've just listened to Chad Billmeyer, an entrepreneur and CEO of Panjo, an online marketplace and community for enthusiasts of unique and high-quality items. My name is Daniel Bazinski for everyone listening, and if you have a dream but don't know where to begin, then start your journey with me at danielbazinski.com. And if you've enjoyed the Dreamcast, then please subscribe to receive weekly updates on each podcast released. If you've had a good experience, then leave us a review on iTunes. Also, remember, if you have a friend or a family that has a dream, but they don't know where to begin to pursue it, then invite them to listen to the show because dreams are worth living, and the first step starts today.